Christ Jesus. While we sing it with full hearts, at the same time we realize how little we understand the fullness of it. That we grasp so little of the amazement of this love, and indeed we, we hardly can until we are in your presence and have a fuller sight and a clearer sight of your absolute infinite holiness and glory. And then the wonder that we have been rescued from our own sin and our own condemnation at your own cost. May we ever meditate on these things. May you bring it always before our eyes. May we consider it regularly that we might increase in worship and our affections continually be shaped to the things above and to that kingdom of which we are in Christ, true citizens of our King. And so we pray now, Lord, as we open your word together that you would teach us from it, that you would do your work of sustaining grace in our hearts as we consider your plans for the future, how we relate to this world, and what your intentions are for your church. So we ask you to be our teacher, and we pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we're coming back to the church at Philadelphia. Before we begin, though, I want to say uh, I did... Uh, just publicly thank you again for the card that was uh, such a, a sweet gift and remembrance uh, last week. So thank you. It was uh, deeply appreciated. And uh, y'all are um, such an, uh, an affectionate part of our own hearts. So thank you for that. Well, as you're making your way back to Revelation chapter 3, we now are continuing. Uh, where We're taking a little bit of time in uh, the to Christ's message to the church at Philadelphia. And we're taking a little bit of time here because there are so many issues that are embedded in his promise to the church of Philadelphia. Uh, A simple message from the lips of Christ in the sense of it was given to this church to encourage them. It was meant for them to understand and for us to understand and as well to be encouraged. And yet, as God's people have considered this promise throughout the ages, there are those who have come to different conclusions and different ways that we are to find that encouragement in the words of Christ here to the church of Philadelphia. And so we're taking a little bit of time to consider uh, what, what exactly it is that he's telling us, what exactly it is that he wants us to lay a hold of in terms of his encouragement to faithfulness and his promise toward the future. So it's worth to take a little bit of time. Of course, even in doing that, as I'll mention again, we're, we're not being exhaustive, but hopefully comprehensive enough to at least understand uh, many of the issues uh, that are there. Well, let's begin by reading the passage, and then we'll quickly cover to where, where we've been and uh, where we're going today. So beginning in verse 7, and I'll actually read down to uh, verse 10. So verses 7 through 10. And to the angel in the church of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, we've noted so far in his encouragement to this church at Philadelphia, one of the two churches that Christ has no condemnation for, only commendation, only an encouragement of their faithfulness, that he begins with uh, giving a testimony of his own character, as uh, he does with each of the churches. And here he reminds us that he is holy, true, has the key of David, opens and no one will shut, shut and no one's will open. In other words, he is the sovereign one. He is the sovereign God of all of his creation. He is the sovereign God of his church. This is a certainty that God's saving purposes in Christ will be accomplished and none can thwart them. 
He encourages this church that they have been faithful to their God. They have been faithful to the gospel that they have received. And therefore, as a reward of their faithfulness is the opportunity for greater ministry, is an opportunity to expand their witness and their testimony uh, throughout the world, which in turn also increases their reward in the future. And indeed, the opportunity that he gives is the opportunity of the sovereign Lord, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, the one who builds his kingdom, his church, the one who acts and none can go against him. And so he says, I have sovereignly laid before you this opportunity, this open door. And then he gives them this promise. Behold, in verse 9, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. He gives them the promise that those who are your persecutors, those who are your enemies, those who say they are the, the workers of God's will, those who are God's people, but in fact they are not, that that situation now will be reversed and those who persecute you will become the humbled will become the ones who acknowledge the truth about your position, namely that you are the ones I have loved. And we took a little bit of time there to consider how this relates to the promises to Israel in the Old Testament and to the Gentile church now. And though more could be said, we, at least by looking at Romans 11, hopefully could be clear on this fact that although the nation of Israel as a political entity as a people who are the descendants of Abraham physically, although they are now, as Paul says in Romans 11, enemies of the gospel, they are yet beloved by God because they have been given a covenant through Abraham. They have been given a covenant that God will fulfill that has to do ultimately with their salvation. Thus all Israel will be saved. Thus all Israel, though now they are enemies, they will not always be enemies. They will again be the people of God. He will extend his saving grace to them. And while much could be said there, there is at least in Paul's argument in Romans 11 the clarity that there is a distinction. A distinction of God's work among the Gentiles. A distinction of God's work in terms of what he is emphasizing now and what he will again emphasize in the future. And so this isn't a reversal of Old Testament promises which had the Gentiles coming to worship under the leadership of Israel. This isn't a reversal of that as if those promises didn't mean what they meant. It is, in fact, a promise to the church now simply to say that those who are your enemies and who are persecuting will come and realize that you who have trusted in Christ were the ones who are truly wise and truly the ones that he has loved. And then in verse 10 he says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And there were primarily two issues then that we need to be clear on when we come to this passage where there's a lot of the discussion. The first is to say, what is the hour of testing? What is this hour of testing? Is this hour of testing something that was accomplished when through the persecution of imperial Rome after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the, other, and the persecution that was to follow? Is this an hour of testing specific to the church at Philadelphia? Or is this general persecutions throughout the age? Or is it a specific future judgment that is described in chapters 6 through 19 or particularly 6 through 18? Which is it? Well, we argue that it is the latter. He is referring here to an hour of testing, a specific time, a specific designated time by God in his program for this age, bringing it to an end in which he will unleash specific judgments on an unbelieving world. Just by way of reminder, we noted that it is a definite period of time. It is the hour. It is a specific hour. It is a specific period of time. We noted, secondly, that that phrase, the whole inhabited earth, is used consistently throughout Revelation to speak of the unbelieving world, the world that stands in rebellion to God and to his purposes and to Christ. This is then specifically a judgment that is to come upon those who are outside of Christ. And we noted as well that it is in a future event with, that is unique in its intensity, referred to in many other places, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, specifically by Christ in Matthew 24, to say there is a time of tribulation, of trouble, and of judgment that is coming that the world has never seen up to that point and will never see again. It is a unique time of judgment. 
In the future, we're going to talk more about that as it relates to the day of the Lord, a very important biblical concept. But for now, we would simply note that it is a future time of judgment that God has intended in his program to wrap up this particular age in which he will test those who are on the earth. And the testing is primarily to, say the, to reveal the heart of those who are here and the justice of his judgment. The justice of his judgment. That though he revealed himself both in the opportunity for salvation and in clear consequences for their sin, as he repeats uh, in Revelation, they refuse to repent. This is an idea repeated in Second Thessalonians as well. So this is a unique period of judgment that he's speaking about that is in the future. It is a judgment that is coming upon the world of unbelief. And then he says, though, you will be kept from it. So what does he mean by that? He says, I will keep you from it. What exactly is this promise? Well, the answer to that question brings us directly into a conversation and the world of the rapture. The rapture. The rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. Is, Is Christ here promising that he will essentially keep his people through the time of the tribulation, in other words, he will keep them safe through that time, or is he making a promise that he will remove them from that entire period of time, that he will take them away and they will not experience this hour of testing that is to come upon the earth? It is a question then that relates directly to the issue of the rapture. So before we get into this specific promise, I want to just briefly take a few minutes and give an overview of the rapture. What is the rapture? What are some of the various positions? And how do these positions relate to the promise that he makes here in verse 10 of chapter 3 in his message to the church at Philadelphia? Now, obviously, this is a very large topic, so we're not going to go into details. That's not the purpose here. It is merely to make us aware of the various ways that this is approached, some of the basic arguments Uh, for it, and then again how it relates to Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. Well, let's begin then by just noting what is the rapture? What is the rapture? The term rapture comes from the Latin verb rapio, which is to carry off or snatch. It's a translation of the Greek verb harpazo, which means to catch up, and that comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, when he says those who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and therefore they will forever be with the Lord. That, that verb there translated caught up is the, uh, the verb that's translated by the Latin from which we get rapture. So that's just where the word comes from. But what exactly is the teaching of the rapture? The essential teaching of the rapture is this, that Christ will personally return from heaven to bring all who are his to to be with himself in resurrected bodies forever. This is again those saints who are caught up to meet the Lord in the air who receive resurrected bodies. And so then he says the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. That's what the rapture refers to. That translation from this present earth, both those who are dead in Christ, very important term, those who are alive in Christ at the time of this event, who will then together receive resurrected bodies, meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth, but in the air, and to go up and to be forever with the Lord. Now, that being said, uh, When is this going to happen? When is this event going to happen? How does it relate to the tribulation period? And it is that question of when that is the most pertinent in the discussions about, well, one of the most pertinent questions in relation to the rapture. When is it going to take place? Is the church going to go through the tribulation? Is it going to keep the church from the tribulation? Is it going to be in the middle of the tribulation? When exactly is this going to happen? Well, each of those that I just mentioned formed three, the three main positions of the discussion. And each one has a nuanced variation, but these are the three main views. And again, as I said, we're not going to address this in detail. That would be <laughs> much longer than the time that I'm going to dedicate to it this morning. Uh, just simply to make us aware of them. One position is this. One position is this, is the post-tribulation rapture. And you'll notice that each one of these positions is in relation to the rapture or the tribulation period. So it is an assuming, essentially, that there is this distinct period of judgment that is to come upon the earth. 
Well, the first is then the post-tribulation. Post simply means after. So it means that this rapture, this event of being called up to meet the, uh, the Lord together in the air in resurrected bodies is an event that will happen after God has executed his judgment on the earth in the tribulation. So it's after the events this position holds of Matthew chapter 24, for example, and Revelation 6 through 18. According to this view, the church will fully experience the devastation of God's wrath and God's judgments on the earth in all of their detail and in all of their executions by God. The church will experience those at this, in this position. And then again, as I noted, the post part, after that experience of the tribulation, that's when Christ will descend from heaven and all the saints dead and alive will then go up and meet the Lord in the air. And according to this position, after meeting the Lord in the air and resurrected bodies, will immediately come back down and be a part of the kingdom that he establishes. So they'll meet the Lord in the air, Christ will complete his judgment, and they're coming down with him then to be a part of the kingdom. That is the idea. Now, a few reasons that this is difficult uh, to accept is, one, is the tribulation is specifically designed as a judgment for unbelievers. It's specifically designed as a judgment for unbelievers who have dominant presence on the earth. Although some will be saved during this time, and certainly from saved from every tribe, nation, and tongue, the primary emphasis in Revelation is on the nation of Israel. Although many will come to faith during the tribulation, he is specifically in this promise in Revelation 3.10 speaking to the church before this period of judgment comes upon the earth. And also, just as a comment, this doesn't leave time for other events that happen that are not a part of the the kingdom that he will establish. Namely, for example, believers receiving their rewards uh, at the Bema Seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 5.10. So again, that's just a broad introduction to it. Another is the mid-tribulation view. This view states that the church will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but will be raptured just before the man of lawlessness is revealed, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. This this position holds then that there is the first part of the seven-year tribulation period, which while it will be marked by turmoil, wars, famines, all kind of disturbances that come from the Lord, it is a rather muted sense of wrath, that there is a great wrath that is to come at the second part of the tribulation period, and it is that wrath, this great wrath, this specific wrath at the last part that the church will be rescued from. And so the the rapture will happen midway through the tribulation period. And so at the heart of this idea is that God only promises to keep the church from this specific wrath of God. They also hold that the two witnesses in Revelation eleven twelve 12 who are raptured are representative of the church. And that the restrainer of 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, and for those who may not be familiar, we're not going to turn there, so... Read it on your own. But Second Thessalonians, he says that there is this man of lawlessness who is not yet revealed because there is one who restrains him or there is a restrainer that will be removed and then the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed and so forth. And so they would hold that that restrainer is the church and it is the church's removal just before the revelation of the Antichrist whom we meet in detail beginning in Revelation chapter 13. A variation of this view sets a more exact time for the rapture and says it's about 21 months or just under three years of the final period of the tribulation and it is sometimes then referred to this theory as the pre-wrath theory. Now again, some difficulties with this view from our perspective anyway is that scripture refers to this entire period as wrath, as the wrath of God. As soon as the seals begin to be, uh, to be uh, uh, broken or be broken, that is the beginning of God's execution of his judgment, his specific judgment on the unbelieving world. So that entire period encompasses the wrath of God, the unique wrath of God. We would also argue that it underestimates the seriousness of God's judgments during the first three and a half years of the tribulation in which massive turmoil takes place on the earth. And there's massive devastation geologically and among nations and in wars and so forth. We'd also argue thirdly that it confuses the seventh trump of the angel in Revelation 11.15 which announces judgment with the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15.52 which announces salvation. Now I know there's just a lot of details in there but, but that is the position. And then there is a pre-tribulation view, pre-tribulation rapture. 
And this position is the position of Newtown Bible Church. And this definition can be taken directly from our statement of faith, which says this. Christ will return personally and bodily before the seven-year tribulation to remove his church from this earth. Between this event and his glorious second coming with his saints, he will reward all believers according to their works. That is the Bema Seat of Judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. So this view maintains then that Jesus Christ will come from heaven to bring his church to himself, which will be immediately followed by the tribulation period. That will be immediately followed by the tribulation period. This will include the resurrection of all church aid saints who have died, according to the language of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, in Christ, asleep in Jesus, in Christ. And that they will all together then be caught up in resurrected bodies to meet the Lord. It is the first stage of, this, of the resurrection of the righteous. A few key arguments here are this, that there are at least eight distinct differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And we're not going to go through all those, but it includes things such as this. The second coming of Christ is specifically an event of judgment, whereas the rapture is specifically an event of salvation. The second coming of Christ specifically has signs that they are to look for before its event, and it has a specific time period attached to it, seven years, whereas the rapture could happen at any moment. Then the second coming, there is no mention in those passages of the resurrection, but in the rapture there is a resurrection of believers that is the main event. In the rapture there is a meeting of the Lord to go up into heaven, whereas in the second coming he comes down to earth. In the rapture there is a specific focus of believers who are receiving the benefits of the promise of the resurrection, whereas in the second coming it is focused only on retribution toward unbelievers and then the establishment of a kingdom. And there are others as well, but that gives you the idea of some of the differences. So there it is. Those are the three ways that the main that this event of the rapture are generally understood. Now, how do they relate to his promise here? He says here to the church, he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia, and through the church of Philadelphia, he's speaking to the church a promise that they are to hold on to throughout the ages of this world. Verse 13, as he says to all of them, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the churches. While there is a message specifically applied to each church, it is a message that resounds throughout the history of the church as bearing application to them, both in terms of warning and in terms of promise. And so here that relates to this promise. I will keep you from the hour of testing. What does he mean, again, by I will keep you from it? Well, as I noted earlier, let me just repeat, there are three primary ways this is understood. Is it a promise that Christ will keep his church spiritually safe as they, as they endure the hostility of the world, as they endure the hostility of the kingdom of the Antichrist, as they endure all the persecutions that are designed for them, as Satan rises and in the, the increase of his influence on the world, that the church will be kept safe. They will not fall prey to that kingdom. They will not succumb to the deceptions. They will remain faithful to the Lord. So he will keep the church through the period of the tribulation. That's one way to take it. A second is this, that it's a promise to be kept specifically from God's wrath, but not the persecution of men in the midst of it. And we'll consider all of these. In other words, that the church will go through it and experience the persecution and suffering at the hands of men, but will not experience certain specific supernatural evidences of wrath from God himself, such as demonic torture and so forth. Again, we'll mention this in a bit. Or is it a promise to be kept from experiencing the trial itself? A promise to the church on earth before the tribulation, or even the midpoint, to be spared from the very events that God has designed as judgment on an unbelieving world? Well, let's consider these. First, what about those who take it as preservation through the trial... Through the trial of the tribulation, through the hour of testing, through the period of judgment that is to come upon the world. Well, the primary argument for this position uh, comes down to the language that is being used. In Greek, there's a, there's a combination of tero, ek, and that's a, a verb and then a preposition. To be kept from, to be kept is the main idea of that verb, and then from is 
one preposition that's translated as from. And so they say, well, this, this exact combination of those two words are found in one other place in John 17, 15. And there they argue in John 7, 15, 17, 15, in Jesus' prayer to the Father, Jesus is praying that he would keep his disciples from the evil one. As a matter of fact, this is his precise words in John 17, 15. He says... Uh, in verse 15, I do not ask, this is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil or evil or the evil one. The evil one is a better translation there. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And so the argument is there. There is this combination, there is this idea that, that the disciples will be on the earth. They are, they are experiencing throughout the age this uh, living among in a world in which there is the God of this world, Satan, who would seek to pull them away. And, and he's praying to the Father that they would be kept, that the disciples would be kept and all those who believe through them. So in other words, the church would be kept from that kingdom. That is the main argument. However, there's quite a few differences Let's just note this between John 17 and Revelation 3.10. And a similarity, all of which that argue, uh, I would say, against this. First of all, John 17.15. Or against this as an exact parallel with Revelation 3.10. First of all, in John 17.15, Jesus is asking them to be preserved from evil or the evil one from Satan's deception or sphere of authority in this world. In Revelation 3.10, he's specifically asking them to be kept from a judgment of God. So there are two different kinds of keeping. One is to be kept from the influence of Satan. One is to be kept from a specific judgment that is in the future that is to come upon the world. Related to this is this. The disciples were already in the midst of evil, already in an evil world when Jesus is praying this. While in Revelation 3.10, the time that he's asking them to be kept from is still future. It's yet to come. He's not calling them out of what they're already in and saying preserve them. But he's saying to keep them from something that is to come in the future. The fact that believers will experience trials and persecution from a world that hates them is a normal Part of Christian experience. To be kept from Satan's deceiving and soul-destroying power. To be outside of Satan's realm is specifically the promise here of those who are in the midst of this realm. Thirdly then, related to that, is that Jesus is saying specifically then that they would be kept not from the hatred of those who are of their father, the devil, but specifically the, more, the, the spiritual realm of Satan's influence and power. That's what is in view. The spiritual, not the moral realm. One said this comment, and then I'll expand on this. Although the disciples, and I'm quoting here, although the disciples were still in the world, they were not within the sphere of the evil one when Christ prayed. In actuality, Jesus prayed that disciples would be kept completely out of Satan's domain, end quote. And in this sense, it could actually even be argued that that same construction supports the idea of complete removal from God's wrath that is to come. Because the out from, to be kept from, is to be kept from the entirety, the completely out of the spiritual domain and spiritual influence of Satan. And so then the parallel would be, it is to be kept out of, from the experience of the judgment that is to come upon the world. That is the case. And in Revelation, Christ would not be asking that these Christians be kept from Satan's temptations and power in the trial, but completely separate from God's judgment that is coming upon that kingdom of the devil. This would be more akin to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1.13, where he says this in describing believers. You have been rescued from the authority of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, the believer is completely outside of Satan's kingdom. And completely inside the kingdom of Christ. They are completely outside of that domineering, enslaving influence of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And they are completely inside and held by Christ in his kingdom and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is part of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. You are no longer slaves of sin. Why? Because you have been buried, you've died, been buried and raised with Christ. 
You are a part of a new kingdom. You have a new reality that you are a part of. Behold, old things have passed away. New things have come. All things have become new to the believer. That's the idea. A closer parallel then with Revelation 3.10 would be this. Would be John 12.27. Let me just mention that verse to you. A closer parallel of this idea of rescue then would be in Revelation 12, 7, or John 12, 27. And here, he's going to use the combination, same preposition, ek, but it, the verb that you're more familiar with, sozo, the idea of salvation. Uh, in some ways, it's translated as rescue and deliverance and so forth. But it is that of salvation, rescued from danger. And so here in John 12, 27, is an episode of Jesus anticipating what he was to endure as the savior of his people. What he was to endure as he was anticipating the cross. We mentioned this briefly last week in relation to the idea of glory. But here I want you to notice something else. Let's read it again. He says, now my soul has become troubled. Why is it troubled? Because he knows where he's going. The hour has now come. The time has come for him to be the sin bearer of the world and of his people. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. What is he speaking of there? What is he saying? He's saying, shall I say, Father, somehow keep me from having to endure this torture of a sin-bearing death. Help me somehow to avoid what the cost of redeeming my people will be in those three hours of darkness that he's on the cross, at the end of which he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not praying here, God, keep me through that hour. He's not saying, God, in the midst of that temptation, help me not to fail. He'd already made that determination. He's saying, what shall I say? Father, keep me from it, that experience altogether. Shall I say, remove from me so that I don't have to walk through this path that I know lays in front of me? That's what he's asking. But of course, for him, he knew that that was not an option Nor was it ultimately the desire of his heart. His desire of his heart was to do the will of the Father and not his own will, as he said in the garden. But here is the parallel that I want you to understand, I want you to see. Is namely this, that this hour is a description of this entire period of time in which he would give himself to endure the wrath of men, but ultimately the wrath of God as a sin-bearing substitute for his people. And the idea of save me from here in this prayer that he refuses to succumb to is to be saved from the entire experience itself. And that seems to be more in keeping with what Jesus is promising to his church. Promising to his church. So the idea of being kept through is a difficult one to hold. Secondly, those who, prom- who take it as a promise to be kept from the deceptions of Satan and the specific judgments of God upon the earth appeal to Revelation itself. Particularly, let me just mention Revelation chapter 9. And here in Revelation chapter 9 is a specific judgment, one of the trumpet judgments, in which God unleashes satanic, supernatural, demonic power to have for a period of unique torture of those who are on the earth, some who are on the earth. And so he says in Revelation 9, he talks about a, bottom, a, pit, a key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened it, smoke came out, these demonic creatures came out and it says in verse 5 they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for 5 days but then he notes specifically that in the midst of this they were not allowed in verse 4 to torment those who have the seal of god on their foreheads those who have the seal of god on their foreheads something that's mentioned as well in chapter 16 verse 2 of revelation 
And so some will look at that and say, yes. So what is happening is that the church is going through the tribulation. They're experiencing the wrath of the kingdom of the Antichrist. They're being martyred. They're being beheaded. They're being persecuted. They're being chased all the way to death to the end of their life. Yes, they are experiencing that. But the promise is that they're not going to experience this kind of demonic torture, this kind of demonic judgment that God will specifically unleash on the earth because they have been protected from it. They've been protected from it. And so they'd say that is the promise that he's making to the church at Philadelphia, to be spared from that hour of testing. But again, it's difficult to take this as the meaning here for a few reasons. One, although God will specifically seal his slaves from this particular plague, this particular judgment, this refers to those who come to faith during the tribulation, not those who are alive before this hour. Again, the promise is to be saved from the hour. Here is specifically those who have trusted in Christ in the midst of these judgments. Two, another reason. Because believers on the earth at this time are still persecuted and killed for their faith and do suffer the effects of the global judgments of God and the subsequent hardships. And one is noted, it would not seem likely that any believer would be comforted with the idea that he will not die in God's wrath but instead perish in the wrath of Satan and the Antichrist. It's a very weak promise if that's indeed the case. Thirdly, I would add this again, as with the first, the entire period is seen as the wrath of God, a part of the day of the Lord. So it's difficult, again, to see that this is so unique as just only to be from certain particular judgments when all of the time is the judgment of God. Third, and this is key, the promise, again, to Jesus is this. They will be kept from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world. In other words, it is a promise to be kept from, listen, the time period itself of judgment. He doesn't say to keep them from the trial. That would have been very easy to say. He says keep them from the hour of trial. The hour is a specific designation of time in which those judgments will be unleashed. He's saying, keep them from that time. If we were to use the parallel with Jesus, he says, keep me from the hour. Shall I say, save me from the hour. He wasn't saved from that hour. Jesus is here promising, saying there is an hour his people will be saved from. And that is God's wrath against the unbelief of the world. And it is a time that he will save them from that is yet to come upon the earth. It is a time of future it is a time that will come that they will be spared from. And so it seems better here then to say that when Jesus promises you will be kept from the hour of testing that is to become upon the, old, the whole world, that he is promising to keep them from experiencing the judgment of God, the eschatological judgment of God in which he will specifically unleash uniquely intense and terrifying judgments upon the whole world that is defined as the tribulation period which is anticipated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, something we'll look at down the road. That's the promise. That's the promise. If he wanted to communicate that he would, they would persevere through the, test, uh, through the trial, there would have been much easier ways and simple ways to say that. There are words available, simple prepositions that are available to do that. But that's not what he does. He says you're going to be kept from, not merely the trial as in through or in or in the midst or certain aspects, but you're going to be kept from the whole hour, the whole time period, the whole experience, that whole designated period in which wrath will come upon the world. You won't experience it. You won't experience it. And indeed, this is the only promise that really makes sense. It's hardly an encouragement to say, because you have suffered by the hands of evil men, because you have suffered from Jews who are liars, who are really of their father, the devil, because you have been willing to suffer for that, I'm going to keep you in greater suffering. That's hardly a promise. Because you have been faithful to my word of perseverance all the way to the point of death, I'm going to keep you to faithful to perseverance to the point of death and even worse suffering. That's hardly a promise. That's hardly an encouragement. No, he's saying, look, 
Right now, you are enduring suffering because of your commitment to the gospel, because of your faithfulness to the word of God, because of your faithfulness to Christ, and because you are enduring suffering now by the hands of men out of your faith in me, I will keep you from a greater suffering that I'm going to bring upon the world. Because you have been faithful to my word, to follow my example of perseverance and persecution, faithfulness when suffering the hatred of the enemies of the gospel, I will keep you from the great suffering and trial that I will bring upon the disobedient and the rebellious of the earth. In other words, those who dwell upon the whole earth. That's the promise. And indeed, we see this echoed in other parts. Let me just give you a few passages just to fill it out and then we'll bring this to how we can be encouraged by this. In the book of Thessalonians, he writes to the church at Thessalonica, for they themselves report to us about us what kind of reception we had with you. Which is kind of a funny statement actually because basically he's saying that other people are telling the Apostle Paul and his ministry companions about the reception of them by the church at Thessalonica. So they're telling them of what they experienced. But anyway, they were just so excited about it. But he says, the reception that we had with you and how you turned from God, from idols, or turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now some take that as, the wrath of hell. That's not the most likely translation. One, that would be an odd way. Scripture doesn't usually talk about it in that way. The wrath specifically is the wrath that is coming upon the earth. He mentions the same hope at the verse 19 at the end of chapter 2. Jesus is our hope, our crown of exaltation. Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? His coming, which is a time of judgment. He mentions the same thing at the end of chapter 3, that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He mentions something similar in chapter 5. And then he talks about, he explains this even more in chapter 4. And he ends that chapter with saying, look, I want you to understand, what I'm talking about here is there's a wrath of coming that you won't experience because you're going to be caught up in the Lord with, to the Lord with all of those who are alive at his coming and who have already died in resurrected bodies. If the church was expected to experience the tribulation period in that unique time, that would hardly be something that the church at Thessalonica was upset about. It would have rejoiced that their loved ones had been spared this time of judgment. But instead, they're disappointed. And Paul's saying, what are they disappointed about? They thought they had missed out on this going to be with the Lord. That was promised. And he's saying, no, that's another event. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, We will live together with him. And therefore you are to encourage one another and build one another up with these words. He says, no, there's a wrath that's coming from which you will be spared. From which you will be spared. A good illustration of this really would rather be Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, God rescued righteous Lot out of the judgment that he brought upon that evil and wicked city. Second Thessalonians, Peter, let me just read it. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, verse 6 of chapter 2, by reducing them to ashes, having made them example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. He rescued righteous Lot. That would be a good example. He rescued them out of the destruction that was to come. He removed him, them from the specific judgment that God was to bring. So at least how we would understand this, is that this is a promise of the Lord to us as his church. And saying in this world you can expect trial, you can expect suffering, you can expect tribulation, you can expect the need to follow my example of perseverance. You can expect the need to follow my example of perseverance in the midst of the hostility of sinners against what is righteous. You can expect to experience what God's people have experienced throughout the ages, and that is a hatred of the world that hates God, the one you serve. 
He says, you can expect that. You need to persevere. You've kept the word of my perseverance. I'm not, I'm not unaware of what you've endured. Like Paul, there is, a, there is a fellowship in suffering here, a fellowship with God through the suffering that his people endure here. He's saying, no, that's a part of this world. That's what you can expect to experience. But there is a judgment that's coming. There is a, a heightened sense of evil. That is going to come to this world. A heightened sense of God's holy reaction. That will be expressed and displayed and demonstrated on this earth. He says but that you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear that wrath. You don't have to fear that experience. And it's far worse than anything that you will experience here. Outside of that. That's his promise. So what then encouragements are we to take from this? Well, Let me just mention a few. As we wrap this up. Well, let me note first, a wrong way to respond then is to have a casual attitude. And that's sometimes how people have taken the idea. Ah, whatever, right? It doesn't really matter. You know, we're out of here anyway. Let the world go to hell in a handbasket. We're fine. We're the church, right? Who cares? That's a wrong way to think of it. That's a wrong way to think of it. Scripture in no way condones that kind of attitude, that kind of sense of exemption that resolves us from or absolves us from concern or care about this world it's never an attitude of the new testament secondly then what what should we do we should recognize that although god has spared the church from his unique judgments that are to come he has ordained that there would be suffering at the hands of men we should not think therefore that that means that everything is just happiness and prosperity here and then being translated to heaven. No, this is a battleground. This is the church militant. This is the church at war. We are in a battle for our own souls and for the souls of men. We are a part of a kingdom that isn't yet established on this world. So we're sojourners in this world. We're an enemy in hostile territory. And so we should be sober. We should be alert. We should pay attention. We should watch our lives. We should keep our behavior excellent. We should keep our eyes fixed on the kingdom that is to come and on Christ who is at the right hand of the Father. Thirdly, and probably we should receive emphasis, is this. It should encourage us to live our lives then as citizens of that kingdom to come. Let me remind you of one passage. And this is what we're going to end with. This passage. And, and I want to just note here, and, and you know you have this experience, many of you as well. I always find it interesting and have just throughout my Christian life. Uh, those who are fascinated with eschatology, those who are kind of fascinated with these events and, and will talk endlessly about these events and, and want to see one little clue of what might be going on and try to make some connection with Scripture and all of that kind of stuff. And we've seen foolish examples of that in many ways, certainly predicting dates and trying to make a connection with every single thing that's going on in the world. And there's just like a fascination with that. Like people are fascinated with the idea of aliens or whatever it might be. There's just this fascinated. Paul addressed those kind of things and saying people who just have this endless interest in genealogies and fables and fairy tales and so forth. Rather than sound understanding of scripture. And what I always find interesting is sometimes, at least in my experience anyway, those who have the most fascination with these kind of things tend to have the least holy lives and humble lives. And, and that's exactly the opposite of what Scripture points us to. So he says in 2 Peter, what is to be our understanding of these things? To, to quibble and divide? To get obsessed with details and dogmatic about positions? Is that what we are to do? He says, no. No, what we do understand is that the day of the Lord will come and it will be a time of destruction. The earth and its works, he says in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, will be burned up. And he says, well, then if these things are to be destroyed in this way, if we, if we truly understand this and we look at the world and we say all of its beauty, kind of like the disciples when they looked at the temple and they said, look at this magnificent building. Look at how wonderful it is. They were enamored with it. And what did Jesus say? It's going to be torn down because it's an unholy people who live there. And so judgment's going to come and not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And it's going to be terrible. 
And there's a similar way in which there's a parallel to the world there with his instruction here in 2 Peter. And say, look at the world. Look at all of its glitz, all of its glory, all of its seduction, all of its sensuality. All of those things that want to keep us tethered here and anchored here in our souls. And he says, don't do that. Why? Because it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be burned. It's passing away, he says in 1 John chapter 2. It's going away. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life have no place in the heart of the one who has truly been born again by God and who follows Christ. He says, don't love the things of this world. Don't love them. Don't put your treasure here where moth and rust eat and destroy. And so he says this, if all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be, what does he say? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, what should our understanding ultimately of these things be? And we had talked about this way at the beginning of Revelation and spirituality of eschatology or something, whatever we called it. But the idea of what is the effect that it should have on our souls as believers in Christ? It should have this effect, that we live for those things that are eternal. Always to be found abounding in the work of the Lord. Always asking God to continually untether our hearts from our sin and from the enticements of this world and bind them more and more as we grow in Christ to that kingdom which is coming, and to live for things which really matter, that have real importance, not fake importance, but real importance. And that is salvation, sanctification, the simple things of living out our faith and obedience to Christ. And so with that, let me pray, and then we'll recognize, call up some new members. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us these things. Indeed, the very, the very fact that you tell us these things in your word remind us of your great glory and your sovereignty and your rule over all things because you work all things after the counsel of your will. You say it and who can thwart it? You determined it and who can go against you and resist you? And we know that in terms of the certainty of what will come upon this world, and we ask you to open our eyes to see it more and more, enlighten them. But Lord, we also thank you for the great promises that you've given to us, that when we suffer, we don't do it alone. You are with us. When we face the hardships, we are not, le not left without examples of faith of those who have gone before us, namely Christ Jesus, but also your faithful saints, our brethren, throughout the history of the church. You've given us that as encouragement to persevere to the end. You've given us the promise that we will not be those who experience your wrath either in this world, that unique wrath, but especially we will not experience that eternal judgment and the second death because Christ, you in some mysterious and unfathomable way have satisfied the righteous justice of God and the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf through the incarnation, through your substitutionary death on the cross, through your burial and your resurrection, which declared to all the world that the final sacrifice had been made and there is one Savior, one name among all the earth by which we may be saved and have hope, and that is the name of Christ Jesus. Keep us faithful to your name and to your word. We can only do it by your grace. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.